So season two is here, and I'm kind of excited about the lineup. Realm IQ sessions started last year. We have almost 25 interviews with various experts from all over the world. And we're having conversations about AI, which, if you don't know, is top of mind, top of the news, and it can, could, and will affect everyone. So listen in. But first, listen up. Are you a speaker trying to get gigs? Are you a booker trying to get your speakers on panels and events or give keynote addresses? Then you need to look into the one-stop platform that does this for you, Ovations with a Z. It's the first online platform to simplify the talent finding and booking process for virtual events. Go to www.ovations.com. And again, that's with a Z. And there you can find a variety of speakers, including myself. And if you're a booker, use the promo code CURT5, that's C-U-R-T number five, and get a 5% discount for booking any speaker, including yours truly. If your company is interested in reaching an audience of AI professionals and decision makers to promote your event or product, we have sponsorship opportunities on this podcast. Go to RealmIQ slash sponsors. Okay, let's talk about our next guest, Laura Edwards. This session was fascinating as it connected the dots between data, near space, climate change, and AI, something we haven't really covered. I first met Laura when she used to produce shoots for me almost 25 years ago. And we worked together across three different agencies and even at Universal. Then she pivoted as she will tell you all about it. So let's listen in. Hello, I'm Kurt Todi with Realm Q. This is our podcast, Realm IQ Sessions, where we talk about everything AI with AI leaders from around the world. Please give us a follow or subscribe. Today's guest is Laura Edwards. Laura is an innovation catalyst who advises on opportunities where the climate and space sectors have the most powerful synergies. She's a NASA data knot and member of the Oxford Space Initiative and served on the State Department's Technology Innovation Subcommittee for Public and Private Partnerships. Welcome, Laura. That was a mouthful. Let's get into it. You have such an interesting career. Tell us a little <laughs> bit more about how you got to where you are, because we go back, I don't know, do. almost 30 years, almost. But... I was going to say, we didn't have to wear reading glasses back when back when we met. Yeah, no, um, no glasses. How did I get here? I got here because of a lifelong interest in environmentalism, particularly conservation. That gradually became more and more of a focus on climate. Mm -hmm. And I sort of stepped away. I started my career in commercial solar mm -hmm. and a very sharp left turn into media and media technology where, where you and I met and, and worked together for so many years. As I as that part of my life was shifting back, I came back to my first love of what to do with what what could I uniquely do to be a, a small change agent in the in the bigger context of, of what the world needed in terms of environmental action. That led me to re-enter the world of green tech and green energy and quickly saw the 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 tragedy of the open data comments that there was all this amazing data being gathered, but it wasn't very available. It's not even searchable. People, you know, I did a TED talk on the fact that there's no search engine for data, even though people think there is. Mm -hmm. uh, that 
that is what brought me to always looking at what are the platforms and tools and trends to approach systems challenges and climate, as, as I'll talk about it a little more, is that, you know, the profound front and center systems challenge of our day. It certainly is. And we're not doing a very good job. Is there hope for us? And how does, how does data help in the fight against climate change, I guess, is the question. Well, data help. information is power. And data is not the same as information, but data can lead to information and knowledge and insights. And part of why we, in my opinion, why we haven't made the impact that we should have, you know, beyond politics and corruption and, and, and lack of funding, all viable contenders for, for top irritants, there's the, the, the challenge of the fact that by the time you look at something, and then have debate about it and, and get funding and momentum, it's changed. Mm. We previously had very good, we still don't have excellent tools for the anything close to dynamic systems studies. And so that's one of the, of the to me, the most intriguing things that can happen from the advances in AI to, to be able to do that, to be able to keep up, to think as fast as, not quite as real life, but close. So, so smarter data that can aid versus hinder progress. Is that the summary? Is that how you see AI working into it? I mean, AI has been around a while. Gen AI is what has been the sensation over the last year, but automation and, you know, data management, data mining, algorithms, all that has been around for a while. So how are the new developments in AI assisting you? Or what's your vision for, for the new AI that's happening? Well, it, it, I think it's important to, as you said, AI, AI as, a, as a field of computing has been around quite a while, but so has big data and big data management and even big computing, right? So there's, there are a whole bunch of things that I think get conflated into, oh, now AI is the term when we are really talking about big data. And because there's a ton of really valuable things in the climate and climate data toolbox that have not that are not AI, that are simply very big data and, 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 and impressive database management, you know, relational databases, et cetera. And so what what is new about AI is the potential for or or, or we're watching it both at massive scale of, of of computation and of tracking and of the ability to learn as it goes. Mm -hmm. Big data it, and, and regular databases don't learn. AI has the potential to learn. So that allows us, that's where the generative AI comes in too, but the, it's, it's not a, about it being an oracle. It's about it spotting things, adjusting, working with humans and other programs. You're starting to see layered models of models. Okay. Uh, then just think about how deep and dark that goes, right? So th there's real potential for on the fly. That's why you're seeing such a huge investment in AI as a situational awareness tool, mm -hmm. right? Mostly funded by various militaries and security apparatuses. But the, that technology, that speed will filter into the public sector and uh, private sector and therefore into the public sector faster and faster. So that's really exciting because we, to your question of how does having more data affect, 
we've been stymied by the bottleneck in the, in the climate and environmental sector of both corruption on the ground and just sheer logistics and costs of putting sensors, mm. satellite data, and then that being available to all kinds of folks monitoring both species and habitat change and, and, and bad actors has the ability to do that without the cost. Satellite data is still not cheap, even if you get some things for free, right? Analyzing is still a lot of work and, and, and big compute. But compared to trying to have on the ground and monitor all over the world, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of sensors, it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot more doable. It's a lot less prone to corruption. So that's, that's, a, that's a big data and then a unique thing that AI can do, which is pick and choose and learn and adjust to all right. these very So, things. yeah, you know, a lot of these BTs are based on LLMs and debate is, you know, what consists of your LLM and how is your GPT being trained? Is it on the general internet? Is it based on the New York Times? You know, what's legal, what's, you know, what's legal and what's not legal and, and also what's ethical and to your concern, what's available, right? Because you can, you can, I imagine you could build a, a GPT available in the, the GPT store and somehow, <clears throat> somehow, if one can access some data that you could build some type of tracking or synthesized data to, to do something, because there has to be some public data, even if it's not enough, but there must be something. So, I mean, is that within the realm of possibilities? Well, one of the things that AI is immediately a, a, a real opportunity in is identifying the gaps in data, right? The same way when we see those images of Earth, kind of like my background here, yeah. where whole parts of the world are dark mm -hmm. because of power or broadband or whatever the metric is, we're, we, sh we'll, we should have a virtual emerging data map and see where whole parts of the world are dark and how completely not okay that is. An, an analogy would be genomes, right? We have, we have a lot of genome research, but it's from very small, tends to be Western, tends to be Northern Hemisphere pockets of the world. That does not provide the models that we need for public health, yes. for example. Right. And same with, same with climate. So there's the, just, just, it's the ability to move quickly at scale. And, and I would say that some, some bright signs are the fact that for the last 20 years, environmental scientists have really become sophisticated data scientists. They have to work with these things. Mm -hmm. So they're already ready, right? They're, they, they don't need to be retrained. And more and more parts of the world are getting involved in things like satellite data, whether it, it be you know coming, coming down or then more likely the analytics of it once they're on the ground and developing their own data science cohort and capacity within their own regions and countries and cultures. So there's a lot of interest in a particularly Southern hemisphere of having data sovereignty around things about their terrestrial environment on a granular level that they can use both for negotiating and power and like they can use it for many things, but the net net of that is more data filling in some of these dark spots, which is good for better models for yeah. where are we as a planet going to put our investments into mitigating climate or climate change. 
Yeah, you you mentioned data sovereignty. Sovereignty. If they are starting to get it, certain countries, let's say, will they want to give it up? Are there governmental <laughs> privacy concerns around sharing data? Is we're very we're in a fractured fractured world. Not everything is open and kumbaya, as you know. So, well, and I mean, it's also let's let's be really clear. We're now in an issue in a in an era where there's too much data. There's not enough for the right data. There's not enough tools for dealing with dynamic data. Okay. But number one issue in, in for example, satellite data is that too much is coming down. It's too exhausting when you only need a few pieces. So what can be done? A lot of really interesting things are being done about how can we pre-select or pre-compute on the satellites before sending it down, which is both slow and expensive, you know, for many reasons to speed it up for monitoring things like wildfires, but also just to make it more useful, I'm only sending you what you need, right? There's right. a reason you have team meetings. You want somebody to have sifted through and to tell you what you really care about. And the Par same is happening. Parsing, parsing the data, right? That's exactly right. And, and summarizing, there's not only parsing it, but then summarizing it into digestible reports that are meaningful to whoever wants the data, right? Well, I mean, again, how do we use data? We use we use data in real time to to you know now we don't even think about GPS and how what it's actually doing and how it got there. But it's not useful to me to know what the delay was three days ago. That that three days ago data is super interesting for a a, a different kind of study mm -hmm. for long. Not at all useful to me. Yeah. So those are data. They need to be stored and dealt with somewhere. How much information do I need to make to do whatever it is I need to do? And the same as in the environmental sector and for climate is some things we need to know right now, forest fires, flooding, you know, dumping, terrible, ter terrible things over, you know, illegal fishing, et cetera. But many things we need, we need historical studies. Mm. Uh, so it's a question of data sovereignty and, and what will be released and what won't. Well, there's always going to be the component in data that is about national security or about the claim for national security. So that is, a, I, I'm not as concerned about that in terms of climate data, maybe with some exceptions of, of solo mono industry countries that want to minimize their activity, but most stuff, most stuff is known. So I'm not too worried about that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it has been said that uh, the climate crisis is the biggest geopolitical crisis facing us, let alone facing the United States as we have immigrants <laughs> pouring in because of various factors from their own country that are driving them away, whether it's drought or crime or, you know, drug lords or what have you. So, you know, our, our defense department knows that cli the climate change is, is our biggest threat because, because of this shifting of populations, yeah. right. From desolate places to, you know, from Somalia to where do you go from Somalia across the Mediterranean to Italy or Greece, or is it to America through Mexico? It's straining, it's straining all the systems of, of immigration. Yeah policies, right? Because it's just too much for us to deal with. Well, there's a theory that civilizations at core are most commonly fail because of drought. And because drought makes all those other things happen. 
Yeah. Uh, and the drought might be because of an ice age, but it's still a drought. And, you know, because then you have food insecurity and then you have instability and then you have people on the move. Never a good recipe for peace and prosperity. So yeah. again, our, I think it's really important to look at climate, which is so big and so overwhelming as a topic, and put it into context of what I think are, just as this is my personal thesis, that there are six primary massive existentially affecting humans and the planet areas of systems change over the next 30 years. So there are others, but these are a big six that are deeply interconnected. So climate, space, biotech, geopolitics, right? We're at an inflection point on global geopolitics in terms of being able to harm ourselves irrevocably beyond nukes. It's not just nukes. What I would, what I call universal connectivity, which is super exciting. The idea of everybody having the tools and being able to communicate. The dark side of that, of course, is universal surveillance. So that's, a, that's an entire system. Outside, and, yeah. That's right. And then the last one is AI quantum, right? Big computing with artificial intelligence. What does, what, and, and when we look at systems, we tend to do snapshots of single complex systems like climate. We don't ever put it side by side and go, oh, how, what are the opportunities and challenges of these things that are all, frankly, happening at the same time? I, I, I always describe it as like the dub, double dutch jump rope where you got it, you, you know, and so our tools need to catch up to what is the magic moment? What is that? Where do you throw the dart to make the most high leverage dis, uh, difference? And that's, that's, I think, some of the super opportunity in thoughtful AI develop this next gen that is coming because a big boom, I believe really is coming as, as two to five years of investment. And by the, by the big players, Silicon Valley defense and others, we're going to see a, just, you know, we, we can't even imagine where it's going. And so let's be ready for it. What, what is the tool you've always been waiting for? Well, ask for it. It can happen more quickly now. So those uh, six systems that you described, they're all, they're all connected as well. They're not individually isolated. And that's so interesting how you, you know, where do you throw the dart when, when they're all interconnected and all have to be looked at. And I, I've heard you talk about systems for a while and I find you just explained you just explained it so eloquently, so thank you. And I, I have a much better understanding about your your studies and your thesis. So you know, you mentioned climate and space. I, I'm a I'm a skeptic around space exploration at this point in our lives when we really need to fix our own planet versus populate another. But what are your thoughts, or how do you see this connection between? space and, and the need to still explore and how that helps us down here on earth. So I would, it's, it's, it, when it comes to space, it, it's really important to separate. Again, you can see behind me, there's the, what looks like a light blue line, re roughly reflecting the atmosphere curving yeah. around planet. that's space. That little band is okay. space that, and, and just beyond it and not much further beyond it is where telecommunications has been operating for 80 years yeah. and that's space. Okay. And nobody, I, I defy you. I mean, maybe there's a few folks who want to go off grid and to the farm and don't want any electricity or GPS, but that's, that's the actual space. Okay. Right. 
so so most of the of the brouhaha of like oh we shouldn't be doing that and we shouldn't be going is about next st stage out mars and beyond and then way beyond deep space those are different that's a different conversation okay so so in terms Good of no no it's a it's a very very eloquent uh, explanation about our tech that is in space tracking all these things that we depend on every day and that is space and so the health of that little ribbon behind you is the air that we breathe right <laughs> the firmament and and that's getting affected by carbon emissions in the entire cosmos or even just in our single little tiny baby solar solar system the most most satellites are in low earth orbit the international space station is 200 is roughly 250 miles up okay moon is 12 times farther than that and mars is orders of magnitude much much farther right yeah. so when we're, we're talking about space and and the because and, at some point you do you know you have that we as, as we as people as citizens have the right to be skeptical and we should about how our nations spend our money spend our risk our our, our people's lives all those good things are fair completely fair questions but back to space isn't first of all space isn't ending telecommunications and low earth orbit and the power of of, of super satellites that are in the, the you know the geostationary satellites that are considerably more expensive and farther out, those are also not going anywhere. There's no, if anything, there will be more so that there is greater visibility. Same way that folks in real life want their streaming content to to issue with no glitches. We want our signal stronger, better, and we want our observational data better for whether it's tracking a forest or whether it's, you know, countries tracking things, other things that, that we don't want to know about. So there's a lot of motivation for those things. So in terms of space and climate, there's a couple of things. The most obvious and topical one, of course, is high resolution or timely Earth observation data, also called geospatial data. But there's so much else that space does for climate, but that that's a that's not necessarily about AI. So I'll save another conversation <laughs> okay no it's all fascinating stuff and as you mentioned satellites and technology and people getting services here on earth how has 5g played into you know this whole hyped up connectivity world that we're leaning you know leaning heavily into you know i'm not an expert to answer that but i would say Faster, better, cheaper across more parts of the earth makes makes a, makes it that more folks can opt in. It certainly means that a whole lot of citizen science or smartphone science can be done, both professionally and citizen science. So I think that's the if and that's just my gut reaction yeah. of that it, it is empowering some of that. Yeah, it seems like that's the the play. It's about bandwidth and uh, having more access to data in other places that you wouldn't normally be able to get it, whether it's the desert or a baseball game, right? It's like, you know, I think that's the promise of 5G. But, you know, you, we just haven't heard much about it since it launched. Uh, there are a lot of conspiracy theories around it, but, you know, hardly, hardly believable, but, you know, there's right. an opportunity in the GSMA, the the which is the trade association of mobile carriers around the world, mm -hmm. 
they do some really interesting things, but think about it. They have a map. If you put the 250 or so mobile carriers globally, they, they're, they, nobody has any, nobody else has anywhere close to the reach of putting things in people's pockets to be able to coordinate data gathering. So that, that is not about AI necessarily, but it is about yeah. the new modes for being intentional about gathering data sets that are essential for using the power of AI. We can do new things if 4 billion people over a period of a week followed a set of prompts and used their smartphones for it. that. That's a data set, right? Yeah, that, um, and that's a future statement. That's what I wanted to get to next was what's your, you know, one to three year, you know, wish list of how AI can enable your research and, and your, your passion and what the net benefit is to the world, you know, not just you as a researcher, but to human civilization. I think there's, I'm, I'm very interested in tracking I, I, the efforts to have AI as legal guardians or identities of parts of nature. So representing that giant, you know, migrating group of bluefin tuna and negotiating on their rights and tracking them and act thinking they are a bluefin or or parts of, of the forest. It starts to get very, very interesting when you think of legal guardianship and, and it's easy to forget an AI is whatever you tell it it is. If you tell it it's a person, it thinks it's a person. Mm-hmm. And if you tell it it's a dolphin, it, it's a dolphin or a tree. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, that starts to get really, really interesting. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Okay, mind blown. There you go. But somebody's got to negotiate those contracts. And you think of the of Santa Claus's, you know, toy shop. Well, it's sort of like, what are the cogs and wheels behind all the actual labor it takes? And so AI never sleeps that that I'm excited to see that experimented with and refined and come up with proper frameworks. There's been a lot of talk about working with indigenous communities as the as the co-parent, co-guardians, some of these nature AI experiments, prototypes. Wow. I, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that. I I well, I also think you know my my personal pet wish is an AI superhero reference librarian because data is siloed and we need we need massive data discoverability. So there's a there, the, so there's the live data of which there's almost too much, and then there's there's data, valuable data that that the whole world, one level or another, has spent a lot of time and money training people, gathering, and then archiving precious data. It's 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 the data archives we would pull from if we needed to go off planet, right? If we were going to send off an arc of what is the most important human data that we'd want if we needed to recreate or represent human achievement and civilization. Yeah. And yet there's no search engine across those. AI could fix that. Yeah. AI right, has the has the ability to do that. So a simple application would be currently, if you're going to do your PhD or you're you're a, you're somebody on an academic track where you're considering a, a, a PhD, you are you, over time you'll you don't have any visibility on other than than a than a slow cadence of seeing academic peer review papers. You don't know who else is doing what. So we have redundant and parallel work going on all over the world, right. which is a really bad use of some of our elite talent, right? Just so just well, simple 
practical yeah. things like that. Well, yeah, wasn't that the promise of the internet to like unify the world in that way? And it's just crazy that it has yet to do that in terms of scientific well, they, research. The internet didn't start with search. It was a it was a, a yellow pages for web pages. Right. right. I mean, once it went from list servers and a, and a military application, it, it became basically a phone book. Well, the phone book is static. I can look it up the people under the W, but I still need to know their name to have a chance to find them. It doesn't suggest anything. It doesn't cross pollinate. Right. Uh, so I, when I think of what I'm excited about, I'm also excited for the hype and the confusing jargon of the term digital twin to become a useful model, right? That is the, the, the whole set of human cognitive tools and the ability to, to think about these things and to prototype and run scenarios and experiments with, with dimension. And, and, and it's almost like robotic surgery. It's, it's, it's the, or remote and robotic surgery. Like it's so crazy, but where are you gonna practice? How do you do it? How do you study things that you can't step inside. You can't step inside an atom, but a digital twin could put you inside the atom to move around and do stuff and not as an animation explainer right. science has right. acted. That, 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 when that becomes something real that people can interact with, uh, both on a you know daily life way, but as a research tool. <laughs> yeah. Well, digital twin to me means synthetic media. We, we recently had a horrible case of synthetic media with the Taylor deepfakes, Taylor Swift deepfakes. So, you know, there's a lot of evildoers that are using this technology in the wrong way, but you just described how to use it in the right way. And I, I think that's fascinating. And we need more examples and talk about how to use digital twins, synthetic media, these proxies, right, for our, ourselves to aid us do something because they never sleep, right? You, you mentioned that. So that, you know, if our digital twin is our better self, you know, what are these digital twins doing for the positive? Well, another thing that pulls it all together and makes it accessible is, I mean, look what's happened in the, in the accessibility of, of graphics and templates and even people like me who for sure don't code can put up a website. I, I might I might still swear a lot as I do it, but I can make one. Mm -hmm. uh, and the the one of the many things beyond you know the smartphone and, and and accessible research tools that that less funded organizations and citizen scientists and students and folks can get involved in and will it'll become faster, better, cheaper. One of the the ongoing needs that is has gotten cheaper is storytelling, right? So now I, we, I could, again, I'm a good litmus test because I, I, I'm spoiled by agency days and talent pools, but I don't have those hands-on skills myself. So, but if I needed to, if I had to, I could go make a video. Yeah, And sure. that, But what, one of the big issues in climate is that, is the need for variable audience short form, last minute, but high production value because everything now people expect such high production value. So I think that one of the great things that un unheralded things that AI will make possible and generative AI as it gets more sophisticated and rights protected will allow the ability to make incredible short films for tomorrow, right? Like yeah. you and I, how much money did we, you know, budget 
and how many teams did we organize to make a five minute film for a client? Well, I could make one for tomorrow that will, I'd be proud to show at the UN. Right. That, that is gonna be new and climate needs, climate overall has a big bummer, existential bummer story <laughs> of a lot of you shoulds and the sky is falling. Well, we need better, smarter, faster ways to target audience, make pieces, including pieces that tell the other, other parts of that story. Like my personal favorite, climate is a market opportunity, yeah. right? As, as a tool for, for change. So I'm looking forward to AI and generative AI, particularly as the video side of it gets better to be a to to be that little creative agency with me to make yeah, absolutely I, I think that type of empowering someone like you and me who come from you know understanding all the uh, expense of doing production film production film post-production special effects all that stuff but using ai to increase storytelling increase evangelism and increase awareness that is so much a part of the deterrent and adds to the confusion of what are we supposed to be doing? And because no one understands it, the most simple politician, you know, will bring a snowball into Congress and throw it at, you know, a Democrat and say, here's your global warming, you know, and it's like, you really don't get it, buddy. So. No. Yeah, there's such a ignorance of, of so many people, but, and, and a lot of people just don't have access to information and not that they're trying to seek data. They're just trying to understand the real world implications, even though we're, we're seeing the, the, the effects every day in the news and the weather and the politics and the drought, you know, but, but where's the story that explains it all just like you have done in this podcast which i you know i i applaud you and and it's so awesome that you're doing this work i i it's it's important to note and shout out or whatever that <clears throat> the ai much like crypto has the gaping challenge of its own negative environmental impact anytime you have more data centers and more you know hot computers it is it is not nothing it is not a it is not a benign environmental impact in its own right so back to space one of the open questions is will we put data centers under the water and here on earth will we put mm. them in space mm. for you know so it's, it's interesting but that is a legitimate on top of all the other concerns of of, of ai and black boxes and and rogue actors and fundamental code from the 80s perhaps being outdated and biased and sexist and there there's there's the very real environmental issue of just the more we get big compute not only do we have a, a rare earth metals challenge yeah. we have we have a, a a toxicity of data centers and computing so those are those are questions that have not been properly addressed as we get more and more excited about what they can do and it's not going to stop so we, we are, we yeah. don't want to be I mean, the only thing I've heard about is, you know, the evolution of the chips uh, that we're using, uh, right. which will help somewhat. But I think where you put those servers in, in space or underwater, I think that's, you know, amazing. Right now they're in the desert. They're in Las well, Vegas, almost, you know, in the yeah. Las Vegas desert. I mean, it's crazy. That's right. Yeah. But, it, it, it's, it's a global challenge and it it uh, that that is a that is a big business opportunity if you can figure out how to make 
the environmental impacts of AI and the explosion of AI computing requirements, yeah. um, you know, ha- have a have a leveling off. That will be that will be a huge contribution to to humanity and money to be made, right? I mean, it's like I, I think it's when commerce enters into the equation that all of a sudden you have the private sector and the government sector funding these problems that need to be solved. And if companies can make money getting contracts either from the government or just creating their own industry, that's what's going to save us and make change. But people don't think about the commerce side. They don't think about there's a business here and it's going to save the world. Right. So, you know, I'll I'll use one example. There were a number and, and full props, by the way, to the early days, no revenue anywhere in sight efforts by, you know, big players like Microsoft and Google who really started, they were pre-planet and pre all these cool new AI startups, really looking at earth observation and AI and, and, and pairing those and running experiments. So models like there's really cool things that only AI can do, like taking uploaded photos of travelers all over the world. So just the international travelers or people in Africa on safari who take pictures of animals or people whale watching or things like that around the world. The AI can go into that to Facebook and Instagram, et cetera, TikTok, and can spot and match individual animals based on their markets. Mm. Things that, that, you know, biologists just dream, drool over. But who pays for that? Who pays to develop it? Who pays to maintain it? That same kind of technology is probably being used by Interpol. And Mm -hmm. nobody minds when Interpol catches the smugglers, but you might, right? So we need to be patient or or have some understanding that things need a business application or often need a business application to be able to underwrite the really cool, you know, let's save the cheetahs application that somebody, it still costs money to go run so-called free programs and they get developed. So there's this cycle yeah. and but the good news is it's all happening faster and faster in terms of migrating out into something. So companies like a Google might release those learnings and then some group of individuals or nonprofit can run with and dedicate their resources to exactly that AI tracking of cheetahs. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fascinating. You know, there is a story behind CAPTCHA as well, you know, the, the where you're getting people just to tag photos and identify things in photos, and that's being collected and is helping some larger initiative around data. I'm not, I'm not sure what the play there is, but that... It's a great example of this little consumer tool that's kind of harmless and people are doing every day and somehow it's supporting a huge data set and informing someone about pictures and the objects in them. So uh, there's got to be a lot of learning and machine learning around that type of data, but it it's, uh, it supports, you know, what you're describing is what, you know, what is the commercial application that makes it happen and who pays for it? And what is the simple way to, to, to get consumers to participate, you know, not even knowing they're participating, right? 
there's plenty of that. People don't read the terms and service terms and conditions of the everything they're signing up for. We'll see if that gets better. But well, listen, we're we're nearing the end of our time here. But I just wanted to, as a last question, you know, you worked for NASA and Oxford. It's so interesting in academia and technology and space. So, what are some quick stories about what you've been doing for those institutions? Oh, sure. Well, so as a NASA data knot, which is a, was a great program that, that NASA actively ran to bring a higher access for people interested in data. So I consider myself a data activist, not a data scientist. Other, most of my cohorts were at true data scientists with skills I don't have. But we were we actively looked at how to use this treasure trove of, of existing and future gathered NASA data, right? And NASA is a unique institution on the world that has a public, a charter, a congressional charter that has to share information with the public. Not everything, but as much as we can. So they, the, so as an NASA data knot, we, we had access behind the scenes of how things are gathered and what are systems and, and ideated and, and prototyped ways to help NASA speed up that pipeline to the public of public data. But there is a massive amount of NASA data available, even though it's not as easy to find as it should be. Uh, it's a bone of contention. So it's more of an ongoing community and mission alignment. And I hope some administration in the future brings back that budget in the in their that line item in the in the NASA budget. So it was a profoundly a pro profoundly terrific program. The Oxford Space Initiative is really about bringing serious social science research to the space conversation. Aerospace and engineering doesn't need our help, but space and the space I described to you, near space, is really for humans. It is not deep space exploration. It is not Pluto or beyond. And so we have a very weak system of governance, like treaties and more, and we're quickly, it's a frontier, and we don't have a very good history on planet Earth of, of dealing with frontiers gracefully. And so, you know, what are but the legal it's been about killing people? So, yeah, <laughs> what are the economics, what are the and, and ultimately, again, what is if space is for humans to thrive and work in? What are the rules? Who sets the rules? How do we go from a paramilitary preconception of what space looks like? Right. It all looks like Star Trek, which is still paramilitary. Right. And science expeditions. Anyway, so. That's what we do at the Oxford Space Initiative. So we look at governance and commerce and ethics, things like who should have access to space. Yeah. And our effort is to bring Oxford and other and partner institutions to the table with, you know, the SpaceX's and the NASA's to talk about things other than will the rocket land and will the rover work? But yeah. it's like, will we be proud of what we're doing once we're there? Will, will we be safe? Will we, will we kill each other? <laughs> well, yeah, you, you mentioned governance and ethics, and certainly that's yeah. what's needed as AI evolves. So, you know, maybe Oxford has a whole AI initiative. I, I don't know if they're in the loop, but... Actually, they have one of the biggest private endowments on the, in the world, working on AI. And these things, like I was saying, those, those six systems are becoming closer and closer and closer. I mean, a, a huge amount of AI investment is being made right now by the world's militaries in situational awareness. And so that's that's not nothing in terms of an advanced block of technology happening that, and again, these things all connected. Awesome. Listen, Laura, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure 
having you on the show. I, I, I want you to come back and talk to us as as your uh, passion progresses. And and for those of you listening, thanks for tuning in and catch more of our Realm IQ sessions on your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, iHeart Podcast, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. And so please follow and smash that subscribe button. Okay, thanks so much, Laura, and Godspeed as you race into space and climate and near space. You got it. Thanks, everyone. You can now watch Realm IQ sessions on your favorite podcast channels, including Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and iHeart Podcasts. Follow and subscribe, people. If your company is interested in reaching an audience of AI professionals and decision makers to promote your event or product, we have sponsorships on this podcast. Go to Realm IQ slash sponsors. Thanks to our sponsor, Ovations. That's with a Z. Ovations is the first online platform to simplify the talent finding and booking process for virtual events. Go to www.ovations.com, again, with a Z. And there you will find a variety of speakers, including myself. And if you're a booker, use the promo code KURT5, that's C-U-R-T number five, and get a 5% discount for booking any speaker, including myself. Realm IQ. Book your corporate AI workshop today. KurtDoty.co. Branding, marketing, and product development.